So today we're looking at John 7, 37 to 39, and the point today is this. Don't be a drip, stream a river. Now, why are we looking at that? Well, the clocks have gone back, and the mornings are lighter, and the evenings are darker. But the thing is, winter is on its way, and there's less daylight, and it's getting colder, and we don't tend to find that a very encouraging prospect. See, the thing is, our environment affects us. And as the leaves start to tumble, it's easy to enter into a very autumnal turn of mind and outlook. And here's where Christians can start to be a bit of a drip. Now, the thing about a drip is this. It's a pretty non-dynamic flow of water. There's no strength. There's no power in it. It's not very inspiring as a drip. It's not very uplifting. It's not even very useful. There's really nothing much there. And where you see powerless, non-dynamic, not very useful manifestations of Christianity, what you've actually got is not a dripping problem, it's a drinking problem. Now, just so we don't misunderstand, Jesus' teaching sits in a context, it sits in a meaningful context here, and it offers an invitation, and it makes a promise, and it gives a clear explanation, which is Slightly unusual, even in John's Gospel. So by way of introduction, and to ensure we understand rather than misunderstand, here's the context. John 1 introduced Jesus as the eternal creator God, alongside God the Father, and the awesome Son of Man, who in Daniel 7 enters the throne room of heaven, takes up his place as of right on the throne of the Ancient of Days, sitting beside the eternal God. And then John 2 showed us that that same Jesus, this awesome, eternal, incarnate God, is ready to use his sovereign power to relieve his little people's embarrassment and shame. That's how he uses his power. And then John 3 shows us that his way transcends or stands apart from even the religion of the top Jewish religious people of the day with their highly ethical pattern of behaviour and their worship of one true God. That won't work. You must be born again, says Jesus, in fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies of at least Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And then John 4 shows us the supremacy of Christ's way to competing, deviating patterns of belief, like like the pattern of belief of the woman of Samaria, and showing up and bringing to light the immorality into which those dodgy patterns of belief actually lead but also revealing the determination of the the eternal and incarnate creator God to bring his deviating and wayward and wandering people back to himself, the fountain of living waters whom they had forsaken, as Jeremiah put it so many centuries before. John 5 then goes on and shows us the way that Jesus deals with superstition. Folk religion, you might say, that holds hope of healing just out of the reach of that desperate crippled man lying by the pool of Bethesda. And focuses again our attention on God himself as the one supplier of our need and our all-sufficient saviour over against the popular folk religion ideas the man had held out as his hope. And the message all along has been that what we manage in our own human strength has the inadequacy of our failing flesh flesh behind it like a drip it's weak there's no flow or strength or power but that god has sent us hope and life and light in the coming of god the son the powerful one the awesome ruler god creator god of chapter one and then there's john six 
And John 6 makes this message explicit. We needed the God revealed in the flesh of chapter 1 because, as John 6 puts it, the Spirit is the one who gives life. Human nature is of no help. And then says Jesus, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And, and that leaves us thinking, well, yeah, I'm weak enough. But, but and Jesus says this, sure enough, yeah. But how does it work? How can that work? Well, we're going to see how that works. But first, there's a warning not to be deterred from seeking Jesus for this, because there are people in John 7 who just choke on Jesus saying, come to me and drink. For starters, the, the leaders of the Jews, chapter 7, verse 1, are so alienated by Jesus and his teaching that far from just condemning him, they're very keen, actually, to get their hands on him so they can kill him. Who believe in such a startling religious teacher when the experts more than condemned him, they wanted to throttle him themselves? Well, that's the big question. It's worse than that. Because although Jerusalem was a buzz about Jesus, it was now dangerous even to debate this question openly in public. So let's have a look at this feast thing, because it does a lot to explain Jesus' teaching here and fill in the background for us to what he's saying. John seven ten goes like this. When his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus himself also went up, not openly but in secret. So the Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feast, asking, where is he? There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some were saying he's a good man, but others, he deceives the common people. However, no one spoke openly for fear of the Jewish leaders. He's gone up to the feast then but he's done it quietly. Done it quietly for a reason. He's gone up amongst these folks at this festival of the Jews. It's the Feast of Tabernacles that we're talking about, one of the three great feasts of the Jews that they went up to in Jerusalem each year. And it's celebrated, really, the Lord leading the Israelites out of slavery in the land of Egypt, caring for them as they wandered in the desert waste as a result of their disobedience. They'd been redeemed from the land of slavery and, and sinned and rebelled against God's delivering hand. And, and because they rebelled against his delivering hand, they therefore wandered grumblingly in the desert for 40 years. God graciously loving and caring for them all along the way. And this feast was to remember God's faithfulness to them. And they celebrated it by living in booths, temporary shelters, as they had during the wandering in the wilderness. Tabernacles is the old-fashioned name for it. These tabernacles, you see, temporary shelters for their days of desert wandering. It was celebrated in the autumn after the harvest, so particularly relevant at this time of year. And there was argument there about Jesus. The crowd and the inhabitants of Jerusalem divided about him. And they, they tried to seize him there, but they couldn't because this time hadn't yet come. And there is violent, murderous opposition, as well as hopeful faith and expectation. The broken world's response to the Saviour God come in the flesh is a broken response. But we're told more about the context here, told rather pointedly. It was on the last day of this feast that Jesus spoke up, and spoke up loudly. Now, you need to know this. 
On the seven days of this particular feast, a golden flagon filled with water was taken from the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and was carried in a procession, led by the high priest, back up to the temple. And as the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the sofar, which is a dirty great trumpet for joyful occasions, were sounded, three blasts. While the pilgrims watched, the priests made this procession round the altar with the flagon of water, and the temple choir sang the halal, the, the great song of praise in Psalms 113 to 118. And, and when the choir reached Psalm 118, this jubilant praise, every male pilgrim took a lulav in his hand. It's like a bunch of willow and myrtle twigs and tied up with a palm frond. And he took it in his right hand, and his left hand had a, a piece of citrus fruit in it, and he waved it about, a, a sign of the ingathering harvest of the of the land they'd now come into after their wanderings in the desert and they all shouted out give thanks to the lord three times and the water was offered to god that time morning sacrifice time along with the daily drink offering of wine and the wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the lord now, there are all sorts of bits of symbolism in there you can spend some time on, the wine and the water and pouring out before God and so on. But these ceremonies in the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought at the time to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Pouring out then at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the age of the Messiah, in, in the age when uh, the Saviour will come, when a stream from the sacred rock would flow out over the whole earth. And at that time, at that time, with those expectations flowing around, Jesus stood up and called out loudly, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He goes further than that. He says, let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Well, certainly Jesus picks up on the literal water used in the ceremony and he uses it figuratively. But what what does the figure mean? According to popular understanding, backed up by verse 39 of this chapter of John, John chapter 7, it refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit to live in the believer. Now, which particular Old Testament passage Jesus refers to here is an open question. Isaiah 58, 11 is often suggested. The Lord will continually lead you. He will feed you even in parched regions. He will give you renewed strength and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring that continually produces water. That's a frequently cited option. You could go to Proverbs 4, 23 and 5, 15, or you could go to Isaiah 44, 3, or you could go to Isaiah 55, 1 or Ezekiel 47, Joel 3, 18, Zechariah 13, 1 and 14, 8. But working through those, even working through all those diverse passages, the meaning in this case is that when anyone comes to believe in Jesus, and that's the point that's being made, it's the believe in me, whenever anyone comes to believe in Jesus, the scriptures referring to the activity of the Holy Spirit in a person's life are fulfilled. When the believer comes to Christ's says Morris in his, his commentary on John, when the believer comes to Christ and drinks, he not only slakes his thirst, but receives such an abundant supply that veritable rivers flow from him. In other words, 
with this view, the believer himself becomes the source of living water flowing out, giving life in a dry and a barren land. Now, it looks as if later texts, people found that hard to accept because God is the source of living water and and they find it, they balk at the idea, the shocking truth that believers become the source of God flowing out like living water to their contemporaries. I, I don't balk at that because that is exactly what Jesus offered the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman of all people in John 4. And of course, what does she do in that story? She goes straight off and she finds the people of her village and brings them to Jesus as this living water that he promised starts to flow out from her too. And, and what do we read there? We read that many of them believed in the Lord. They found life in him. So what's being said here? In verses 37 and 38, there is this invitation from Jesus. Whoever's thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of his soul will flow streams of living water. Does the invitation come to me, drink? He who believes in me, let him drink. And then there's the promise in verse 38. Invitation, then promise. Just as the scripture says, for from within him will flow rivers of living water. Explicitly, John records Jesus saying, the one believing in me. Now, it's true, is this, of the one who is believing in me. Not who did believe, not who made some historic walk to the front of a large meeting and, and, and some made some mere transaction with a counsellor, no mere praying the prayer one time in your bedroom, no one-off inclination of the mind, but a committed and ongoing orientation of a once-and-for-all reorientated life that continues to be lived out leaning on Jesus. There's the difference between a drip and a water source. And this is what Wales lacks, and what Jesus is talking about here. The one believing in me, as says the scriptures, it says, as the scriptures said, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Uh, and there's no single scripture. Jesus is summarizing scriptures like Isaiah 44 and 55 and 58 and Zechariah 14.8. No single scripture being quoted. Jesus is summing up what the whole body of divine revelation is pointing to. What is it he says that's written then? What is his summary? The summary is this. The Greek says again, potamoi ektes kulias autu resusin. Now, it's kind of a strange thing, but it says rivers will flow from their guts. Um, yeah, hang on. What does this mean? Well, the root of this word guts here, koilia, which the concordance defines, goes like this. It's the whole belly. Yes, yes, it is that. It is the gullet. Um, yep. It is uh, the womb where the fetus is conceived and nourished, the, the uterus of animals. But, but also, it comes to mean the innermost part of a man, the soul, the heart as the seat of thought and feeling and choice, the inner person. From their inner person where they are trusting and leaning on Christ and drinking from him, the stream of living waters, from the innermost soul of that person leaning their whole weight all the time, full on Jesus, out of that person flows potamoi, rivers. Not drips, not trickles, not watercourses or drainage ditches. There's 
plenty of drainage water sloshing about in many churches to their detriment. Such a mistake to think that everyone in church today is believing. Very many full of drainage water. Out of the believing belly flows rivers of hudatos zontos, living waters. Waters that give life, as we saw when we looked at chapter 4 with the sinful Samaritan woman at the well. That same day, the waters of life Jesus gave her were flowing out of her to bring life to many others in her village, who saw full well both what she'd been and what she'd become, and that is the mechanism that brought those people to Jesus. Are we still missing the point? Just in case we might be missing the point, John brings us an explanation so clear that we're bound to be clear on this. Invitation, verses 37 and 38. Promise, the bulk of verse 38. Explanation, verse 39. Brackets. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me take you back to the Gospel according to Ezekiel. Yeah, the Gospel according to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 37, there's the Valley of Dry Bones, which carries the message of last week, I guess, that the flesh counts for nothing, but the Spirit gives life. And then in Ezekiel 39, God promises to deliver his people and pour out his Spirit on them. And then uh, Ezekiel is is given, after that, his fly-through tour of the restored temple, the dwelling place of God, which goes on for a number of chapters, until in chapter 43, the glory of the Lord returns to the temple with the focus on the coming king, who we now know is Jesus. And then there's more architectural tour, until the service of God's atonement takes place in the temple, and, and worship is reinstated there in chapters 45 and 46. So God himself has come to his temple, and let me remind you just briefly of what Paul says about believers being the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God now dwells. And then there's this atonement and worship going on, and then in chapter 47, he, that is the angel guide, brought Ezekiel, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I noticed that water was flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from under the right side of the temple, from south of the altar, and he led me out by way of the north gate, and, and brought me around the outside of the outer gate that faces towards the east. I noticed that the water was trickling out from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a measuring line in his hand, he measured 1,750 feet. And then he led me through the water, which was ankle deep. And again he measured 1,750 feet and led me through the water, which was now knee deep. And once more he measured 1,750 feet and led me through the water, which was waist deep. And again he measured 1,750 feet, and it was a river I could not cross, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me to the bank of the river. And when I'd returned, I noticed a vast number of trees on the bank of the river, on both sides. And he said to me, these waters go out towards the eastern region and flow down into the Araba, where they enter the Dead Sea, where the sea is stagnant, the waters become fresh. Every living creature which swarms where the rivers flow, river flows will live, and there'll be many fish, for these waters flow there. It'll become fresh, and everything will live where the river flows. 
The entire vision of Ezekiel is conveyed in metaphor and imagery. It's a revelatory dream he received as he sat beside a drainage ditch as a captive, exiled to Babylon on his 30th birthday, the day he should have been getting inducted into the Levitical priesthood at the conquered and now wrecked and derelict temple in Jerusalem. What a vision for a guy in that circumstance. Where everything looked dead and hopeless, desolate, well that's a lot of ezekiel but let's cut to the chase that river that slow trickle growing in depth as it grows in distance growing incrementally as it moves from the threshold of the visionary temple out into the barren wilderness bringing life wherever it goes that river is the flood of living water that streams out of the souls of the people who believe the growing army of the people of god those people who rest their lives moment by moment on the awesome Son of Man, the eternal Creator God, who came here as Jesus, and who, when he's lifted up, draws all men to himself and goes on pouring living water into their deepest innermost being, but only does so as we lean our whole weight livingly on Jesus. We've seen it already in John 4 in that woman of Samaria. And Jesus proclaims it now at the festival of God's grace during sin-induced wilderness wandering, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he brings that promise with this explanation to wanderers yet. So here is the question in conclusion. Is that what's flowing from you? Streams of living waters or seeping, oozing drips of drainage ditch, like the one that Ezekiel was sitting beside in Babylon. You see this flowing stream of life-giving water, it's his to give, you've got to get it from him. It's his and he gives it you if you lean on him all the way. There's the crucial factor. In your weakness, in my weakness, is it Jesus we're staking it all on? See, the call is to put your chips, all your chips on Jesus. So his life-giving water flows into you and on from you, now the temple of his Holy Spirit, off into the dry, barren wilderness of our world, giving his life everywhere that goes. There's the way to be living through autumn. Streaming Jesus into you and out from you. And leaves die and fall from the trees. And you drink Jesus. And you flow his life-giving life out. Giving life wherever he goes.